Hello to you wherever you are listening from. My name is Harriet Mansell and this is the If a Tree Falls podcast, named after the philosophical question, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? I wanted to know, what is it that drives the people that inspire me? From chefs to cider makers, foragers, farmers and more. How do they place themselves in the world? I'm a chef and I forage for my menus. Wild plants represent something to me that is more than the sum of their parts. In this podcast, we explore people's stories, their connection to the natural world and what drives them. We look for inspiration as well as exploring the things that we all have in common. It's a gentle and calm space where I go on walks with some of the most inspiring people that I know. This podcast is loosely based on the indigenous principle of going into the woods to find some food, but also returning with a piece of information or an insight about yourself, life or something greater, which explains why each conversation is recorded outside. You will hear not just information about wild ingredients, but what matters to the people I speak with. So join me. This week, I am joined by theoretical physicist and author, Dr. Felix Flicker. Now, I'm sure some of you didn't think I would be kicking off this podcast by interviewing a condensed matter physicist, but that's exactly what happened. The recording of this podcast has given me the opportunity to speak to a diverse range of people from varied backgrounds and disciplines. I read Felix's book and it really opened up a doorway through which the world, though spoken of in different terms, drew many parallels, and I just had to explore this further with Felix. Felix studied at Oxford, Berkeley and Bristol, and is currently a lecturer of theoretical physics at the University of Bristol. He delivers popular science talks on a variety of topics within physics, and recently published his book, The Magic of Matter, Chaos, Crystals and Wizardry, to introduce condensed matter physics to a wider audience. Felix and I have known each other for many years now, since we were in the same tutor group at school. So it was absolutely wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to him about his work in physics, his incredible and inspiring book, and of course, foraging and wild foods. So join us in part one, as Felix, Felix's wife Dominique, their dog Geoffrey and I go on a walk in the Devon countryside. We took a stroll past Head Weir, alongside the River Otter, outside of Ottery St Mary, back on a sunny day in the summer of 2023. We harvest wild garlic for Felix's wild garlic pesto and discuss the importance of correctly identifying plants. We discuss how not all wild edibles are necessarily tasty, the connectivity of physics in the wider world, martial arts, English wine, quince flowers, pine tree sorbet and much, much more. What I love about walking down these little um, country lanes, Felix, yes. is the fact that almost everything's a salad. <laughs> is it? Yeah. So, okay, I mean, we'll so, like, we can stop here. All right. Cleavers. Sticky Willy. Remember this one? It's covered in little... Yeah. What do we call this? Uh, well, just sort of uh, sticky weed, I think sticky, we call it. Yeah, sticky. And you stick it on people's backs so when yeah. they're not looking. Yeah. <laughs> people, people say this is the best time of year to pick it because it's... 
really good for lymphatic drainage. That's what a lot of people say. Um, of humans? Yes. Okay. I don't know about those types of things or like the therapeutic impact, but um, people juice this. It kind of tastes kind of grassy, so we don't use it so much as a flavour in the restaurant, but it is said to be nutritionally very good for you. So what do you do with it? If you juice it, okay. it would be uh, good for uh, relieving puffy feelings in your face, etc. Mm. <laughs> but this one here is, I was going to say, this is, do you know this one? This is Herb Robert. <laughs> Herb Robert? <laughs> Herb Robert. That's great. Yeah. A um, member of the geranium family uh, discovered by a monk called Robert. Okay. <laughs> That's the name. Oh, and okay. kind of faintly smells a little bit like, a little bit curryish if you like crush the leaves. Mm. And how do you eat this one? I mean, just as a herb, really. We're still experimenting to get the best flavour mm. from this one. The thing with the wild ingredients is they're so bitter. Mm. They have that real inherent bitterness a lot of the time. So we have to work quite hard to... Okay. Well, I appreciate bitterness as a as a part of flavour, rather. Some people don't. I love it. Um, so then it's just about balancing it with the food, having something sweet or something acidic or something salty to, you know, to, so it can have its place on mm -hmm. the dish. But yeah, that's that one. Yeah. What's <laughs> this one here? Is this edible? It looks quite nice. Well, that's though. campion flowers and they're not edible as far as I'm aware. Okay. Something I learned while recording a later episode of this podcast during an interview with forager Robin Harford, is that red campion is, in fact, edible. On Robin's website, eatweeds.co.uk, he provides a detailed description of red campion and its history and folklore, as well as its uses in food. Here, I will read a little excerpt. A recognisable flower of the hedgerows, the flowers of red campion were said to resemble buttons. The Latin name Silene comes from the drunken Greek god Silenus, although the plant was considered anything but merry in folklore. Red Campion had a dubious reputation in some parts of Britain, where people believed picking the flower would bring bad luck. Children believed they would be killed by lightning if they picked the flowers, and in Wales the plant was known as snake bite, and picking it was thought to lead to getting bitten by snakes, or causing snakes to come into the house. Red Campion, like bluebells, had associations with fairies or goblins and their mischief. The red campion leaves are an ingredient of pistique, a traditional spring dish eaten in northern Italy. And red campion wine was made in 20th century Britain by boiling oranges, lemons, red campion flowers and leaves with barley and sugar. Robin goes on to explain that the young shoots can be blanched to reduce their bitterness and made into a puree similar to spinach. So as you can see, a flower I previously dismissed as inedible is in fact very much edible. Back to Felix. I saw a load of pennywort just then, and I meant to stop, but um, we've, I think it was back there. We'll do it on I'm the sure way we'll back. I'm sure we'll see some more. So this is cow parsley. Some people call it wild chervil, but you should, uh, this is one of the ones that I would say you need to be super... I'd never advise anyone picks this. That, we, is that what you picked for our planter, Dominic? No, no, I did not pick that one. I was very um, careful. Too. So this is a um, member of the Umbellifer family. So um, this is kind of your carrot parsley family. Um, mm. This one, some people call it wild turvel, cow parsley, um, but it's very, very similar visually to hemlock. So... Oh, <laughs> oh so it's dangerous because you might get hemlock. Yeah, and so you, I wouldn't even... I, I can identify this because there's a difference in the stems. This hemlock has a uh, smooth stem and it's mm. often blotchy. Uh, this one is ridged. Um, so I feel comfortable in terms of identifying it, but I never encourage anyone to... Because it's a pretty white flower. You could use that mm. as a finisher dish, but I just... 
say to people, stay, stay clear. Mm. And bellifers are, yeah, can be quite dangerous in general. Do you remember my friend Jack, who I was best friends with growing up? Anyway, his dad picked some wild garlic, I think it was, and was offering it to people. And right. then he ate some, and then it turned out that was hemlock. Yes! And then he was very, you know, he, he, they had to put him in a coma for six weeks, basically. See, this type of this type of information isn't actually as um, rare as you would hope. People misidentifying uh, wild garlic's the one that you hope is one of the entry points for foragers or people wanting to learn about wild ingredients. But actually, people do get it wrong. Mm. I had someone point at um, a plant called a lord, lords and ladies, a lord and a lady once. Yeah. I'll see if we can see one. And they said, "Oh, is that wild garlic?" And I, well, no, it wasn't. And they, yeah. <laughs> Is lords and ladies, is that a poison as well? Yeah, very poisonous. Okay. Um, but just growing at the same height and, you know, at floor level and at the same time of year, I think this is the danger with foraging. It's quite easy to, if you can unsafely identify one thing, then you kind of hope that you can identify something else. And you do have to just be extraordinarily careful because nature is a scary, scary place if you get it wrong. <laughs> Did, have you ever made a mistake and got the wrong one and fed it to someone? <laughs> Phew. Okay. See, <laughs> you no. you're pretty certain before you start feeding people, I guess. Yes. Have yeah. you got it wrong and fed yourself a thing that's uh, no. poisonous? The things that I would only pick, ever pick something I'm totally... Oh, this is Pennywort. So you've got Jack by the Hedge and Pennywort here, but yeah. Pennywort... Jack by the Hedge. Oh, that's a form, another form of wild garlic. So I was going to wait oh. until we saw them with flowers, because then it'll be easier for you to These are great see names, it. aren't they? Jack by the Hedge? Yeah. Yeah. And pennywort. <laughs> so this is pennywort. Um, and Which it kind of, it? well, oh. it's these, these guys. And okay. some people call it navel wart. That's a really crap one because it's been eaten by stuff. Some people call it navel wart because it's got this dent in the middle that looks a bit like a belly button. Yeah. Um, and it's mild flavored, succulent. Again, people say it's cooling, uh, but because mm. it's kind of a little bit succulent. Um, and it only ever grows in woodland or shaded locations. Okay. So somewhere like this in this perfect so you could have that in a salad uh, some people juice it again but I mean from a flavor perspective in the restaurant we would dress it with something to take away from its bitterness but you can just eat it can you yeah it'll probably be quite bitter not that bitter it's not the worst thing ever is it so that's just like a salad leaf I would say hmm. <laughs> oh it's quite bitter oh. it's getting more bitter it's... with time isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit bitter is, is, the, is this a sort of wild garlicky thing? No, no, no. That's not. No. <laughs> What's that? That's not Jack in the Head. I think that's just a, a kind of like a bolted campion. It's it's leapt up to get some light. It's oh. those little pink flowers again. I think. I'm probably not going to remember all this. <laughs> I'm enjoying it, but I'll just let it wash over me. Okay, so so now you'll you'll observe lots of pennywort. <laughs> oh, there's some, that's pennywort, is it? Yes. Yeah. Like grows on walls mainly, but the thing is, I don't think we we wouldn't really pick things for the restaurant if they taste, you know, too crappy. <laughs> you know, because a lot of things do, and people, right. or they're they're just they don't taste good enough. I think we are quite selective. Like just because something is edible doesn't mean that you should eat it. We would necessarily serve it. Um, we pick nettles a lot. I was going to say nettles yeah. I've heard of as being a thing. Do you make like a soup or something? Is that um, I actually, you know, I tempura fry them. So what I like to do is, well, obviously I like to be bold with my nettles mm. when picking them so they don't sting me. How do you, 
How do you do it? We always just sort of press the top down, yeah. but you seem to be grabbing the bottom. Well, so the little um, little hairs go in one direction. Okay. So, you know, you don't want to... You're do more likely to get stung that way. But if you're pressing them down... Like, I watched a forager the other day and he crushed it all, hmm. like, with force in his fingers. And it didn't, um, it didn't sting him. Okay. So, I mean, obviously that didn't sting me. And he ate it like that, which some people would say... You should always cook it. I don't normally do them raw, um, but we tend to um, pick them and just put them in a really light tempura batter. Okay. So tempura fried leaf, and it comes out completely whole and intact. And then you can see the leaf through the tempura because it's, you know, proper Japanese style mm -hmm. tempura um, mm -hmm. belly there. It's so thin. Yeah, very, and, very light. And then you can see the, all the little serrations on the edge of the leaf. And then we mm. top it with stuff. So it's a little just a little vehicle for goodness mm, um, and it looks well when we cook it in the restaurant it people always say oh is that a shiso leaf is that a japanese thing yeah but no i think that's one of our first snacks that we give people it gets people in the zone <laughs> oh, i'm just we just tell people you're going to just get loads of weird leaves <laughs> all evening <laughs> you should definitely come to eat in the restaurant at some point oh we should yeah. yeah we wanted to already actually before yeah. you got in touch because uh will's singing its praises yeah that'd be nice do you send gifts out? Like tempura nettles? <laughs> it sounds like that's one of the gifts, yeah. <laughs> Would you like one? No, I mean, sorry, I meant in the restaurant. We oh, noticed when we went mean, to these... You mean like pre... Yeah, we pre went to these Michelin star places and we yeah. noticed that both of them, you know, they're already like 13 courses, but yeah. then between them sometimes they're like, oh, the, the chef sends this gift of another course, you know? And it, and it was several gifts. Oh! okay just like this is special I'm, for you yeah, yeah. and uh, we just noticed there seems to be a thing that they they're sort of like you're so special you random mm. customer 13 that you know you get an extra course did, did the trick work <laughs> no i mean I, I didn't really fall for it the first time but the second <laughs> time it you know <laughs> confirmed that that was a, a special gift from a yeah. ploy yeah, we tend to just stick with the one menu, no extra specials. Although on the last menu, I was insistent on telling everybody. I made a last minute decision to serve people this pine yogurt sorbet. Okay. Yeah. With pine nuts? Pine it? needles. Pine needles, wow. Mm. Okay. And it tastes quite delectably of apple and kind of a tannic apple, a little bit lemony and citrusy and delicious basically yeah and i thought well, well we'll make a pine oil which will be nice and grassy and serve it with a bit of salt on top and just to give people the full expression of pine mm. and um i wasn't sure about sending it because it had a little touch of sweetness i thought is that what people want first first thing they they eat but actually i decided to send it out with the salt and told everybody that <laughs> that wasn't part of the menu okay and how did it go it went down quite well but i became a bit obsessed with pine recently like, I just couldn't stop researching pine. I discovered there are like apparently 818 different varieties of pine. Wow. <laughs> Classif or classifications, uh, except accepted classifications of pine. So I thought it was quite a lot. Oh, and then I wow. researched the oldest pine tree on the planet. How old is it? Would you like to guess? Mm, 250 years. Keep going. It's more than that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 600 years. Keep it going. <laughs> more? Yeah. A lot more? Yeah. 2,000 years. Keep it going. Even more? Yeah. They get really old? Yeah. Well, 3,000 years. Okay, keep going. <laughs> this is getting into the <laughs> realms of uh, implausibility, but all right, well, 5,000 years. <laughs> Less. less than that yeah apparently i'm yeah. not obviously i could i could have this wrong but it, okay. it did come from several sources yeah 
on the internet. So, okay. Yeah. So, well, maybe it's true. What, what does it say, the internet? How, does, how do you feel about the reliability of several sources on the internet? Yeah. Uh, 4,700, apparently. Wow. It's called, apparently it's called Methuselah and it's in California. Okay. Yeah. And how have they dated it? Is it, is it now dead and they can look at its rings? Or? Apparently it's still going. Oh. Again, I don't understand it fully. So yeah, how would they know then? Do we think there's a few bold claims for old trees? Yeah, I just know five was sort of the, the upper limit on the claims for the oldest tree I okay. seem to have heard. <laughs> well, perhaps we can get a definitive answer from somebody. With the yew tree, I, I read an interesting article about it because people believed they were a lot younger. And then this, this man had a dream that where a yew tree appeared to him and it said, I'm actually a lot older than everyone thinks. That's how all, all good people get their evidence. Yeah. <laughs> but he went, he went and told everyone about this and was on and on about it. And then it turned out that like, he actually showed that it was true. And because they, kind of, they kind of grow out and then they like, split into other trees. They look like different ones. And they kind of go back into the ground. They do this kind of weird sort of growing thing that ends up yeah. with them growing into a ring. And so people hadn't really noticed this before this guy got on about it. And they realised they thought this tree was like, like a thousand years old, but actually it had come from this other one that was still like the same organism that kept growing. So then it was worked out there more like 5,000 and the, the yew tree was correct in the dream. <laughs> but it was a lot older. And it wanted people to know that because it was being a bit hard done by. So it communicated. <laughs> I mean, that's what this guy said. I think he also said a load of incorrect stuff as well, but he happened to be right about that bit. Or, you know. It was at least it was quite insightful. Exactly. I don't know how you'd explain that, necessarily. Well, yeah, maybe he'd, he probably thought a bit about yew trees before, and mm. maybe it was just like he went to sleep and then realised during his sleep, you know, I guess I end up solving a lot of uh, maths problems in my sleep. Because <laughs> you, you think about it for ages and it's not, you're not being productive after a while. Then you go to sleep and chill out for a bit, and then when you wake up, you're like, oh, maybe it's that. Yeah, to do with, I guess there's different brain waves as well, different states of your, where you, yeah, yeah, like you say, where you're relaxing. And yeah, okay, I usually go this way. Should we do that? With for the wild garlic. Oh, well, yeah, it is, it is down this way, yeah. Um, hmm. I just like this route. Yes, it's pleasant, it actually. Nice and high and down again. Yeah, I feel like Merlin Sheldrake in his book, he goes and takes some LSD. Oh, yeah and um, discovers or thinks he might have found out, found a realisation, but obviously it's not verifiable and remains unverifiable. Hmm. But I guess time will tell. Yeah, I, don't, I can't say I've ever worked anything decent out on LSD, but <laughs> <laughs> my PhD supervisor's PhD supervisor once claimed that his only good ideas he's ever had, he had on drugs or while drunk. And my PhD supervisor said all his good ideas were when he's having a shower. I think because he was relaxed again. Almost like those semi states that possibly cross the or bridge the gap between medita meditative states slightly. Yeah. Putting the thinking mind to rest at least. I, I think you need the period of thinking quite hard on it uh, but at some point that can often become unproductive. Are you seeing any good edible stuff as we walk along? Okay hang on back back to it. So lots of ivy, lots of bluebells and both not edible. I just saw some holly and that made me think. I remember reading something about holly somewhere, not, not as edible, but there was some use to it. I'm going to Google that when I get back later. I think I mentioned that there seems to be a bit of a lack of verifiable information on a lot of these wild edibles. 
I presume there's like a thing where you like point it at stuff and it tells you what it is. Yeah. That exists, is it? Yeah, there are apps. I don't, I don't have any of them on my phone, unfortunately. Okay. Because you don't believe them, or, <laughs> or you don't need them. I think they're. I think. I think they are helpful in terms of putting you on your way, but you, they're definitely not conclusive. Okay. They could be helpful. Yeah, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't trust them. So this is head weir now. Okay. This is where the teenagers build their bike jumps. Oh, that's nice. I found a giant puffball down here when I was a child and I've always remembered it. Ah, yes. Can you, you can eat puffballs. Yes. Yeah, the giant puffballs. They're pretty cool. Very they go cool. a long way. And a cool squishy texture. <laughs> yeah, I think we probably smashed it to bits. I feel... I think I felt bad about it, but it was definitely worth it and I've remembered it my whole life. Also, it likes it, doesn't it? It likes to be kicked a bit. <laughs> yeah. So you've just, so, so you're now a lecturer, did you say at Bristol or Cardiff? Bristol, oh, I just accepted a job in Bristol, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm switching over, which I'm and very what, happy about. What exactly are you, are you lecturing? Uh, well, I'm a theoretical physicist and yes. I'll be lecturing methods of theoretical physics initially, but I also do some quantum mechanics teaching, which is why I teach now. Quantum stuff, weird, mysterious things. That's my favourite, basically. Weird, mysterious things. Well, yeah, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the most mysterious thing? In all of physics? Mm. Probably the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. So it's, it, like, in some sense, you can see why it has to be mysterious. But, like, so if people said, OK, there's light, and we can think of it as, like, rays, but then people were like, well, what's it like on the smaller scale? Because like a ray is kind of a big thing, isn't it? You know, like a thing from the scale of our world. Yeah. And they're like, okay, so on the smaller scale, probably stuff is made of, of particles, maybe. You know, there's always a bit of a back and forth as to whether it's particles or waves. But if you think it's going to be particles, then you realise you, you already get into kind of difficulty because there's like certain crystals, for example, that when light goes into them, it splits the light into two beams. And that's fine when it's a beam, because like maybe it's like a river, like splitting into. Then if you think of each it being made as a stream of particles, then each particle comes along and it has to choose one of two directions. But that's a bit weird, because normally when you do an experiment uh, and you set it up exactly the same way, it behaves the same way, right? That's the whole point of science. But with this particle, it, it comes under identical circumstances. Now it has to choose that way or that way, and it does it half the time one way, half the time the other way. So you already see it's gone a bit weird. And it's... If you follow it through philosophically, you see there's no way to escape the fact that basically, like, measuring stuff has to not necessarily influence the world. That's kind of a philosophical interpretation, but um, probably, essentially, if, like, measurement influences the world somehow. Like, the reason it... It doesn't really go one way or the other until you measure it at some point in the future. When you measure it, you then see that it either went one way or the other. But there's a way to tell that it didn't do one or the other until you measured it. It kind of did both, in a sense. But when you measured it, it made it choose. It's pretty weird, isn't it? I mean... I mean, that's the basis of all, uh, of all the weirdness in quantum physics. And it has to be the case, you know, there's just no way around it. It's not that, like, we're going to come up with a better theory that doesn't do that. You can just see, on a philosophical level, there's no alternative. It must do that. That's because you kept kind of asking why, you know, you tried to break things down smaller and smaller. And, and the reason we kept asking that was because it's like, well, something's going to be a bit weird here. And we realised that it was weird. <laughs> Which is great. And the outcome is that it's weird and it will be so. Yeah, and we're never really going to find it intuitive, probably, because it's not the world we really live in. We live in a, this big-scale world. When you say the word intuitive, hmm. what's your, like, what do you mean by intuitive? What's, your, what's the physics definition or what's the personal definition of intuitive? Oh, I don't think... Yeah, I think that's a good question. I, there isn't one, really. I just mean, like, 
you know, when I pick this up and I let go of it, what it's going to do is I find intuitive, I think, you know? That doesn't really surprise me. Yeah. If I did that with a quantum thing, the set of things it would do yeah. would not be intuitive because I've never really picked up a quantum thing like in it that's behaving in a quantum way. Mm. It is on the smaller scales, mm -hmm. but, you know, it, like on our big scale, it's not seemingly. That's another weird thing about it. So when you talk about that particle and it's only when you look back at it that you've decided or that you've, when you've measured it, that, that, mm. that then that conclusion is drawn at all. I, I, I don't understand. Yeah, they're, they're exactly. Like there are experiments that show that it must be the case that it's like, so when you toss a coin yeah. and you slap it down on the table, yeah. then it's either heads or tails. And when you take your hand off, you find out which one it was. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's intuitive, I think, because we do that and that's, that's not that exciting. There are experiments you can do with quantum coins where effectively you toss this quantum coin, obviously that's like an analogy, but a thing that behaves quantum mechanically, and you slap it down on the table, and you can show that the outcome of the experiment would be different if it's decided whether it's heads or tails before you look. The same thing happens, like you, you don't know yet, you take your hand off, now you see it's heads, say. But there's an experiment you can do that shows that if it was heads before you lifted your hand, it would behave differently to how it actually behaves. So, but in that entire process, you're, it's all to do with the measurement, but not. So you're treating all particles, or I don't know all of your terminology for it, as, yeah. as inanimate, effectively. Yeah. Well, it's, or, yeah, yeah. They're not making a choice. They're not making a choice, probably. Yeah. Again, it gets into philosophical interpretations, but they'd be pretty niche interpretations if you thought they were making a choice. I think. Yeah. There are some quite fun ones where it's tied to human consciousness, but I suspect you know, they're not mainstream. They, they're not, you know, a, a lot of this, when you get into the philosophical side of it, it's, physics can't say anything about it anymore. Mm -hmm. like, there's no experiment you could do to check whether that thing is true or not. So really we can't, you know, I can't comment as a physicist on it. So it quite it does quite, it opens itself up to. Yeah, if, if you want to tie it back to the, um, you know, the topic of the podcast. Yeah. Um, Fritjof Capra was, he's someone I got in touch with when I was in Berkeley. Yeah. He wrote this book, The Tao of Physics. Yeah. Have you heard of that in the 70s? It's, it's actually kind of the first modern book of popular science. But he was, it was really big in the 70s, like both with sort of physics people, but actually more with like sort of uh, kind of hippie people, basically. He was a big sort of figure in the hippie movement. And He's, I, I thought it was fantastic, you know, and uh, anyway, I, I became friends with him at some point when we were in Berkeley and when I wrote my book, he was very supportive about it and he ended up not only like writing a blurb for the book, but he uh, made a video about how much he liked it. And since the, since he wrote this thing about the sort of mystical side of physics in the seventies, he's mostly written about, he writes about like ecology, environmental stuff. He's got this basic idea that he, he wants people to understand that things are a lot more connected and thinking of stuff in isolation like when you think of science and stuff is like I do this experiment I separate myself from the system and I, I change the properties of this and he's like that's just not how it works you know you're part of the world and and science modern science is like coming to understand that you can't really separate one thing from another they're always connected um, and understanding that connection is an important part of trying to understand how things behave. Do you find that a lot of the people that you work with or that you conduct experiments with or research with they are they have a certain outlook on the world do you find that you get you would you get for example someone who is like you who is deeply spiritual for instance or would you get someone who's deeply religious do, do those cross over or will you do you find that people have a certain outlook on the world i think there's there's a sort of typical outlook but actually probably no person is really typical yeah? 
there are like very religious people who do science and yeah there are sort of more spiritual people um, there, are, there are people who aren't interested in those things yeah, yeah. but at some point if you, if you think about the philosophy of what you're saying and doing then you're forced to take a weird position at some point you're questioning things yeah some people don't want to question it you know some people are like i want to make this uh, technological device that's going to be useful and they don't want to think about why this thing is working they're still using this weird stuff like quantum mechanics and it still does the same weird things that, but they're just not thinking about why mm. how it's weird or they're just like well i just do this experiment and that will be the outcome Ex and that's why it was that it's very simple yeah that's cool so you delve into the weird <laughs> i like the weird things yeah oh yeah but yeah fritjof definitely got me more into well, so in, in this kind of 20-minute video he made advertising my book to the people who follow he's he doing these, these kind of ecology courses yeah um and he was saying that he felt like i'd kind of stumbled across the same idea let's go this way yeah I, i'd kind of ended up espousing exactly the same stuff that he's been sort of teaching since since his first book really about the kind of connectedness of things and yeah i think he calls it a systems approach okay um, so he came he was a you know he has a phd word. in physics as well yeah um but yeah, he's become a lot more into the, yeah, the connection to nature thing. I think the essential idea, I, I might be misrepresenting yeah. it, but I like this idea that, um, you know, Alan Watts said something like, we're part of the world, like the apple is part of a tree, mm -hmm. something like that. You, you can think of the apple as like a separate entity, mm -hmm. but actually the apple is, it's not really separate, is it? it's growing on the tree. It needs the tree to turn into the apple and so on. Mm -hmm. And we need to breathe air. We think we're separate from air but well we can't exist without the air so in what sense are we really like a separate thing to that you know we need like water air all these different plants and things so from one perspective you're like well i'm different to that plant but in the other one you're like well i am made of the same stuff because i eat that that plant and it goes into making up me and the idea that i can think of myself as separate from it is uh, perhaps a bit of an outdated view yeah it's um a little bit like that root that quote through me like you're not a drop in the ocean you're the ocean in an you're the entire ocean in one drop <laughs> oh i see yeah yeah okay yeah. exactly yeah what i liked about so my friend polly she's has a cider orchard in huxham huxham barns just outside exeter called find and foster yeah what they do is they go to all these different lost orchards in Devon and lost as in they've stopped being orchards as or? in people who have these orchards but they can't maintain them they're part of their land and they're just neglected so okay. they, they approached so many different people who had land or orchards that weren't being looked after and they said we'll maintain your land for you in exchange for the apples yeah so they started harvesting all of these apples various different heritage varieties and by heritage some of them they know and others they don't because when you um put like a cox apple mm -hmm. pip into the ground it won't grow into a cox apple tree it will grow into a oh. hybrid variety oh why is that um it, it's just it's like humans they they won't re they won't recreate the exact same variety oh, okay. in order to create that apple so, you need to is, is there, uh, it, graft it so the apple came from a cox tree yes but then it the tree was like pollinated with another tree was is that how it works yes yeah, so, so it's like sexual reproduction lines. with it's, plants. yes okay and that, so but in order to create like a so like another bramley apple tree yeah that, uh, yeah that has the same attributes you would need to graft it onto yeah oh i see okay so they're, so. They're, right it's more like cloning them yeah exactly it's okay. much more like cloning oh are we getting like into that. wild garlic zone here this is where i was told it is down here 
So now we can smell it first. We'll we'll see some. Oh, I was told it's down down here. Oh, down there. There's loads. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah. We yeah. Can That's the badger. Yeah. Let's get down there. But all the apples on a given tree, they're all the same kind, and yes, they all yeah. taste roughly the same. Yeah. I see. But because she's like um, recovering these yeah. wildly growing apples, yeah. they're all different. Which is quite nice. Oh, that's great. Keeping the, the apples alive. Right, here we are, wild garlic. Nice. All right. I, we pick a lot of the seed heads, actually. We'll pick the seed heads at this particular point and turn them into capers. So oh. we'll sort them and then pickle them and they'll be delicious next year. Okay, but that takes a year. Well, give it a couple of months. <laughs> Should we just get How going? How do you it? want? I want quite a lot because I think we should make it with uh, Martin. Okay. Well, we'll see. I, I make I make the pesto stuff and then I just have it straight. But I think we've decided that that's too strong for a lot of people. It, it is. It it, ca it can be quite um, quite full on. I find I find it's quite it's quite a pervasive flavour. I enjoy it a couple of times a year. Yeah. I uh, really enjoy it, and then I'm gonna go off it. Oh, do you pick them with the stems as well? Are the stems? Oh, I mean. Oh, you get everybody. Yeah. Okay. In the restaurant, we'll pick all the stems or something. You know, we use all of it. But actually, I should just. Which bit's got the most flavour in it? Is it the stem or the? Leaf? Oh no, the leaf. The leaf's pretty good. Okay. But you're gonna are you gonna blitz it in a blender? I was thinking so. Yeah. Yeah. And I was gonna put parmesan with it and <gasps> pine nuts. Classic. And some lemon. Is that? How you do that? That sounds like about about the sum of it, actually. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Would you have any tips for making it better? The thing is, I'd say use a really nice olive oil or something, but that's just going to take over the flavour of the olive oil. So you probably don't need a really good olive oil. Mm. Just mm. use a nice oil. Lots of people love to use rapeseed oil in this country, although I shouldn't really say this, but I can't really stand the flavour of it. <laughs> Why is that? I just, it's just there's just something about the flavour. It's quite nutty and. I think I overate it. I think Alex Coleman did his PhD on a type of weevil that either eats rapeseed plants really? uh, or it does the opposite, it helps pollinate them. Oh. Anyway, apparently there's a big industry in his branch of science. Basically, they all are very interested in this because it's so much of the world's food is, comes from this plant. To preserve the rapeseed. Yes. Have we got enough, do you think? How much would this, would this do seven people's worth? I would say it's going to comfortably do, but I don't, okay. it just depends how much you want. Well, just take a little bit more, hey? Okay. Yeah. I mean, they say with, you know, you should only take what you need, but I don't think we have too much right now. Yeah. <laughs> get these plants here. So, yeah, that, that one bit in your book, that, I mean, just towards the end of it, where you're talking about your friend who's, do, who's doing, a, is that this, doing a PhD or doing a project in... Yeah. Trying to create. Probably it's um, it's the bit of my martial arts teacher actually, Damien Hackney. So he. Yeah, that's the one. I didn't mention that he's my martial arts teacher in the book because I ended up cutting the martial arts stuff from it. Why? Why did you do that? I was a bit uncertain about it. Like I thought, I don't want it to age badly, and I think it, without being, if I don't handle it sensitively enough, then it could be seen as sort of culturally appropriative and with the history of uh, Britain kind of colonising large parts of China for a long time. So I, I didn't mention that he was my martial arts teacher, but you know, as part of uh, doing martial arts all the time, I guess he's uh, become quite a mentor to me. What martial arts? Kung Fu is what I teach. So I learned it in Exeter from him. Yeah, 
it's helped me think about things. I think, you know, so basically reading, I used to read books on physics when I was a teenager because I was always obsessed with it. And mm. then at some point, uh, several of them mentioned that our physics is like the best popular science book on physics. Yeah. So I was like, well, I better read this. And I did. And I really liked it. And then it kind of got me also into, it's about the connections between physics and Eastern mysticism, which previously I would have been totally dismissive of. I'd be like, science is great, you know, engineering, that sort of stuff. All that other stuff is a load of rubbish. Whereas this book was like, made me see that it, there was something, it inspired me to read more about that. And I kind of came to reading about that. And then I guess I was more receptive to learning things like martial arts. Will Roper used to do jujitsu and I'd always be horrible and take the piss out of him and be like, that's stupid, he, you know. Anyway, so I, I stopped being quite such a horrible teenager at some point. <laughs> I think te but teenagers are, hor are kind of horrible, so. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> That I tried to comfort myself by saying, well, I was a horrible teenager, but also everyone was kind of a horrible teenager because <laughs> teenagers are horrible. Anyway, so I kind of got into martial arts partly because of reading the Tao of Physics, I suppose. It made me a bit more receptive. Plus the Matrix came out and I got very into that. Oh, yeah. yes, I do. I remember watching that in, um, in religious studies, actually. Oh, yeah. Yes. All right, we've got this. Yeah, is that enough for you? I think this is enough. Shall I carry it around? I'm happy to if you want okay, to. Well, Unless you want to. Yeah, that's all right. Yours it's looks more like a bouquet than mine. This <laughs> is just, just, just artfully. Yeah, it's very pretty. I was trying to take pictures. <laughs> if, if ever I'm in a picture, I'm usually making some just really weird face. Like, <laughs> um, um, Yeah. We well, okay, if we carry on, let's yeah. go to the end, shall we, and then come back? We'll see if we can find something flowering, because that could be some nice flourishes to your okay. pesto, you know. If we can find some three-cornered leek flowers, they'd look quite pretty. And also they would taste of garlic. Ooh. This is another type of nettle, which is an edible one. Do you think, so we've got beavers around here, as you might have heard. Oh, yeah. That looks like a beaver's done that, doesn't oh, yeah. it? Oh, yeah, definitely. So they've come this far up the river then. Well, I actually heard they made it all the way to the top, but I didn't realise they were around here. That's quite cool. That's very exciting. Um, oh, slen another type of nettle for you. Oh, nice. oh yeah, that's a nice Dead one. nettle won't sting you. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, do you normally try and use uh, all of the, all of the co components of the things that you forage? Uh, that's actually a really good question. <laughs> because my initial drive to use wild ingredients was one of flavour. And then it became one of sustainability and appreciation and respect for the environment. And now I try to forage as sensitively as possible. So if there is something that's particularly invasive or in season, I'll forage a lot of it, but I won't forage more than I need. So if I wanted the nettle, I would just take a few leaves off every plant but I obviously wouldn't use the stem so I, d I wouldn't feel the need but I would try to take what I would need without having an impact on the plant. There aren't so many things that I would uproot because then you're having an impact on the environment but that one plant that I would uproot, <laughs> there, like apparently you can um, uproot certain plants and, and it actually has a positive impact on their ability to, to, to continue. But did you mean like would you use yeah. the entire thing that you did yeah. pick? If I picked something, I would use all of it, yeah. I would feel a requirement to, because if I picked a whole plant, I would. Um, sometimes if I pick a whole plant, I'll dry it out and dehydrate it and split it up into a powder or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't pick something and then not use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about or just use part of it. Yes, or I'll just only pick one small part of it. Mm -hmm. This one here, 
is called um, ground ivy because it grows like an ivy, like it kind of creeps across like that. Yeah. But it's actually a member of the mint family. So if you smell it and crush oh, it, it's, um, it's kind of almost sagey, minty. Mm. Kind of minty, sagey. Mm. Oh, nice. And actually, like in, mm. you know, like old medicinal uses and stories, people say that this apparently, if you drink a tea of this, it helps with tinnitus. Never tested. <laughs> never tested. What's tinnitus? Like ringing in your ears. Oh. Yeah. Really? So I said to some people the other day, who who's up for? I was like, can I get some people with tinnitus? I'm not a doctor. I can't prescribe <sighs> this to you. But if you would be up for drinking mm. this mint in a tea, then you can report back and um, quite like to know if it's true or not. More of the same. But there is a lot of stuff you can pick. Oh, so you're, you're asking me about uh, Damien's PhD yes. thesis. I'm not sure if he uh, has done it as a PhD. I haven't spoken to him in a couple of years, but I liked it a lot. He had an idea for actually making like a sort of board game type thing. <laughs> that connected you to the world, so you had to go off and collect things as part of this uh, game. Like, a, what, to what, to kind of target a sense of discovery? I think so, yeah, I think you wanted to turn it into a fun thing. But basically, yeah, the idea was that m more than half of people live in cities now, yeah. like, for the first time. And so he's like, he lives in, on the edge of Dartmoor, and he's like, you know, I love all this and it makes me really happy. And, but like basically everyone agrees with that and science does say that it's good to go out in nature and hang around there but he's like unfortunately you know mo more than half the world just actually can't do that anymore so is there a way to get that like is there something inherent about like a tree that means that when you see this tree and interact with it somehow it has this proven positive effect or is it that like there's a psychological thing you're doing there and you could train yourself to get that same feeling from stuff in the center of cities Oh, you know, obviously trees are great and he's not trying to say we should do away with trees, but he's like, just people don't always have access to them. It's quite privileged to live on Dartmoor. <laughs> I think when, when, I, when I serve someone food in the restaurant, I think it's a similar thing. You're tapping into certain things in terms of a person's presence and their appreciation of the moment. Mm -hmm. So when you engage someone with the idea of education or yeah, learning something new, um, experiencing something new from a sensory perspective and you have certain conditions that allow that person to land in that space fully and engage with it, right. then their appreciation of that thing and that experience is heightened and right. elevated and they are tasting the food more. And you can, you know, in simplistic terms, the, the outcome of that is that that person goes away feeling that they've gained something and they've remembered it and they've tasted more than they would have done had those conditions not been set up. Right, right. And those are the conditions that I've tried to create in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you, you analyze those conditions and you think, well, how can we heighten that experience? But mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a similar type of thing. I know, well, we know that when a person is fully present and engaged and seeing and appreciating something, then they're deepening their experience of it from a sensory perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I think of it. The challenge with the city is there's a, there's a quality to nature <laughs> that is, I suppose, in the realm of maybe not quite as describable. <laughs> I don't know. It, yeah, I can believe there's something, you know, we have evolved with nature, haven't we? And it's a very artificial environment in the centre of a city that's really only existed for like a hundred or so years. So it's quite possible that you just can't get that same effect. But I think it's definitely worth exploring whether that is the case or if there are some bits that can yeah. lead you to have those uh, psychological benefits. I like the idea of going to have to find things. <laughs> yeah, it was something to, you know, he only sort of vaguely explained it to me while we're on a walk, but 
it was sort of like some kind of like role-playing board game where you develop a character uh, and the character sort of gets an association with something or other and it might be like metal but then you sort of he was trying to work out a system where you'd kind of uh, benefit in this game from actually going out in the world finding this thing and, and like developing a story and, a, and like a connection to that thing I suppose uh, I think possibly because we were stood next to a drain pipe at this point and he used that as an example <laughs> so he's like like word go from the words that, that sort of thing is obvious but could you get that from a metal drain pipe I mean ultimately the the stuff that goes into that drain pipe did come from um, somewhere out in the world the fact that it's been refined and processed and turned into this human-made thing does that necessarily detract from that maybe but maybe if you can if you try to think about the way that yeah. that, that drain pipe got there and where it came from and perhaps that can give you that sense of connection yeah because you've increased you like you've increased a person's understanding of something and the components and right. that it's more than <laughs> yeah, inspired it's, them it's, to think about those things I guess. Yeah. yeah and a little bit like with say foraging or going on a treasure trail um i suppose it taps into that that sense of satisfaction which I suppose is connected to a dopamine release mm -hmm. or, uh, when 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 you do discover something and you find it uh, that's something that I suppose we've evolved to feel a sense of hmm. um, finding something I suppose that's that could be considered something that we've we've just have within us that's definitely uh, how Minecraft works, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I've never played Minecraft, actually. Alex got me into it. It's, you know, it's a children's game, but it's just like a pure dopamine hit. If you go off trying to you just dig holes in the ground in this game and you just want to find like gems and things. Yeah. And they're just, just rare enough that when you get one, you're like, yes, I got that diamond. Diamond's really rare. I wanted that diamond, you know? It's a, it's a little bit like Pokemon and stuff as well, then. It, yeah, it's, it is like Pokemon. Yeah, I want to find that rare Pokemon. <laughs> I've got to catch them all. So I guess like with finding the drain pipe, it's a bit like going on the Banksy Trail or something in Bristol. Uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. Yeah, perhaps it is. Yeah, he's just like making everything kind of more, more alive. Well, I definitely like the philosophy of it. Yes, yes. This is pretty much the end of our um, countryside walk. If we carry on, we have to go back on the road, which okay. is pretty rubbish. So we can either go back the way we came yep. or we can go on the rubbish road. Well, what do you reckon? It's slightly shorter on the road, but I think we should go in the countryside because that's the whole point of the walk, really, isn't it? Are you happy to re-walk, trace our steps? Maybe we'll yeah. see different things on the way back. Oh, I did see some different things that I didn't say. Okay, let's, let's see those. Yeah. I quite like this bit. It's a good, uh, mm. good end to this walk. That's a good, good little bridge. Looks like you've got some, is that might be, that looks like an elder flower tree from here. Oh, where? Just on the right there? Yeah. Do you want to go and see it? want to see it? There is a look-alike. We'll know when we get up close. It is elderflower time. Is this elderflower? Yeah. Does it really smell of elderflower? No, we could get it early in the morning and oh. it smells mm. a lot more strong. So what would you like to have an elderflower press? What would you press? It's all over your face. I'd just make it, no, just, we just put the, um, put the leaves, you pick them when they're dry, you pick them quite early in the morning um, and that's when they, they, they have a better scent actually. Mm. And then you um, just put them in, we put them into sugar syrup with a bit of lemon. Why do they have a better scent than the other? Um, because the, the, when, when, the, when the flowers come out, the pollen all blows away and then they just, they just in the morning, they smell stronger. Very nice. Very pretty. <laughs> Actually, how did yeah. you get into being a chef at all? Oh, crikey. I liked food. Yeah. 
a lot. I liked flavour. I didn't really... And then I had hospitality jobs, the way that you do when you're going to university. I did history and politics at uni. Hmm. Went to Cardiff. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was kind of just taking hospitality jobs afterwards. I remember just going, I, I really enjoy this. And then I think I thought that chefs were just rock stars, basically. Right. At the time, I just really idolised the idea of being a chef because I thought that's so amazing to be able to work with flavour and create these things and share that with the people around you. I thought that's, that's, that felt like it meant something to me. And then I was just obsessed with wild ingredients, kind of concurrently. And then I... I was working in London doing an office job. OK. And then I started, well, I kind of made a decision that I wanted to take chefing forward. And so took a part-time job at working for Mark Hicks in, the, in one of his restaurants. And okay. then just thought, oh, I need to retrain. So I just went to cookery school, basically. And um, then my first job out of cookery school was going straight over to work at Noma. So uh, it was... Sorry, what's a, Noma? It's, Noma. A, it's an amazing wild foods restaurant in Copenhagen. Oh, OK. Oh, great. So just, yeah, and then I just worked in Michelin star restaurants, kind of getting into the, the drill of things. We, we were wondering how much does the, the chef whose like, name is on it, how much hands-on are they in a, in a Michelin star restaurant? I think it depends. Okay. Depends on the chef, actually, because you're, you're going to get some where they, they're not so hands-on and they've probably just got a really efficient head chef. And then, and then other times you get people who, who take that really hands-on approach. I think that... You know, like Phil Howard, he's kind of, he's a, a famous Michelin star chef who said, you know, he needs to have prepared the food to feel connected to it. Okay. Um, and I think that just simply depends on your values and integrity as a, as a chef. I can't imagine having a restaurant and feeling attached to it if I wasn't in it cooking. Yeah. But everybody's different and has, I suppose, different motivations. But yeah, how common is that? I'm not, depends on the chef. I mean, like, it depends on the empire. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. So, do you do you enjoy cooking at home? Like, uh, I say, Dominique enjoys cooking. Yeah. I am learning to enjoy cooking. Is that a good, good answer? Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. doing it. She's very encouraging. <laughs> yeah. I like cooking. Yeah. I like eating well. Yeah. So I like. Like cooking. <laughs> yeah. You, you you invent a lot of very good stuff, don't you? I can follow it's recipes. Like self cuddles. You know. Self cuddles, yeah. yeah. Like self love. Yeah. Um, Mark Hicks, actually, you know, the, the chef who has got the restaurant in Lyme Regis, mm -hmm. he always wears a t shirt that says fancy a cuttle on it. Okay. Because he's a seafood <laughs> chef. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's his thing. <laughs> fancy a cuttle. He loves it. Yeah, no, I, I'm getting into it. I, I'm not that discerning. I wasn't that discerning. I'm still not that discerning when it comes to food, I guess. I'm starting to learn about it. Well, after, will this be your first wild garlic pesto? No, I, this will be my third. Okay, so quite discerning on the wild garlic front. I, I like, as Dominique has explained to me, I like strong flavours. <laughs> like, ridiculously strong. Right, so, so, so gar really obnoxious level of garlic is good. Yeah, I eat garlic just... Chilli? Well, I can eat garlic raw uh, and also just, like, eat the cooked ones. Yeah. They? And I really like that. Yeah, really? chili. I, I'm obsessed with like super hot chilies, and I'm growing some chilies. Interesting well. how I always find it fascinating. Our, our palates, um, again, like our interpretation of food is so, so, <laughs> so different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something really that I think for me was quite interesting on my little quest mm. was the fact that COVID. Did we all experience it? 
Uh, I mean, I did, and it took away my um, my, my taste and my smell, mm. which obviously widely reported, particularly amongst people who rely on their senses, as being quite quite potentially damaging. So I was on a mission to get it back. Okay. And I, you know, did my research, and I read that you needed to smell train, scent train, and do all of those things. So I had yeah. all of my oils, essential oils. I you know, bought loads of them to. To the, they said you should smell clove and lemon and rose and these kind of distinct flavours that you should have an association with that you can retrain yourself. So I went down that route of smelling them and then I realised, well, actually, I think my my sense of smell or like smell distinction mm. is a little bit probably broader than most people's. Um, I trained trained as a sommelier at one point mm. in my 20s and like obviously all that I meant that I was, would always obsessively smell everything to yeah. just try and get to the bottom of that. So when my, fla- my, my, my scent and taste buds came back, it's like they came flooding back. Mm. I think potentially the deprivation caused this um, almost an onslaught of mm. sensory explosion of flavour and smell and all the rest of it. And I think I felt that my smell was particularly acute for quite a period of time afterwards. And I think it feels improved actually in general mm. um, from actually going through that process. That's great. I wondered if if other people had that but i think that because of that that focus on those senses i think then i that, yeah there were other things as well that i just started to appreciate more in terms of my senses you know just experiencing places and being somewhere and you know touch and i think maybe just being a bit more present in general actually right yeah, I see. funny enough uh covid for me just increased very much my senses now for one thing which was like vinegary stuff Anything that had alcohol or vinegar, yes. I couldn't even, you know, I could smell it from very far. Yeah, that, that's interesting you say that because I had to give up alcohol for a period of time because I couldn't stand it, the idea of it being near me. And, you know, for some, again, I just mentioned in the previous sentence about training as a sommelier, you know, it's, it's quite, un, for me, that was an unusual thing to go, well, actually, you're going to, you're going to need to not consume that thing. Because of COVID, was this the alcohol thing? Well, there was this sensitivity to certain smells, ah. and then yeah, like Dominique just said, like the alcohol or vinegary things. I, I definitely experienced it with alcohol. It became something that I couldn't, yeah, I, I, I couldn't process the idea of having anywhere near me. But that you recovered from that, did you? <laughs> I've, I've recovered from that. I've recovered from that. Um, okay. I mean, not, I'm not a full full alcoholic, but you know, I do enjoy a glass of wine from time to time. Oh. Right, oh, I was going to tell you about this earlier. The flowering quince. Oh yes. We um, we knew it was edible, and we knew it was a beautiful colour because it was red. You know, this ornamental garden flower. Well, we'd heard it was edible at the very least, and we thought, well, let's get hold of some. We're willing to give this a little sample. Oh. And uh, it didn't smell of anything. I mean, you crush the petals as much as you like between your fingertips. Absolutely nothing, scent-wise. So we thought, well. Let's just see if we can get some colour out of it or something, you know, let's just keep going. And we ended up just putting it in a sugar syrup because we thought, oh, I'll just chuck it in there. And um, when, the, when the sugar syrup started boiling, like the room was just filled with the, the aroma of the, um, of the cherry bakewell. Ah. Um, and it was just such a, such a kind of interesting moment of that being something that we hadn't read about anywhere. We hadn't discovered that that would happen. And then we now make this syrup all the time. We turn it into kombuchas, or we make soft. We make a soft drinks pairing for our food, and yeah, things like that feel like these little moments of discovery, where you think it didn't have a scent that was detected. You know that we were able to access, and then 
and then it did <laughs> and it was it was fun would you have a set of things you'd usually try to get a scent out so i mean we'll definitely always put something in a sugar syrup and boil it now okay we, we often try salting something or putting it in sugar so some aspect of dry brining um, just to see if that has an impact we'll always try some kind of fermentation typically yeah the, just the, the addition of salt we'll start with the two percent salt to, of the total weight volume so that lacto fermentation is that so what you put salt on to mean it draws the flavor out is that uh, yeah it's well it, it creates lactic acid usually oh. in the well well it does typically with the with the cabbage you know like that's the principle behind a sauerkraut okay so we tr we, we try that style of fermentation on things quite a lot we yeah, if we're not sure if something's got a flavour, we, we quite often just see if we can put it into something, well, like a kombucha scoby. See if the kind of, you know, natural, the bacterial yeast will do anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, we'll usually dehydrate something as um, just to see if there's any kind of, you know, if you, you kind of condense the flavour that way. Um, just try, try roasting, cooking. Just try doing every little cooking method we can think of usually to just see if something has um, something that we want. And quite often with... with like the leaves when they're very bitter we'll quite often just put things on the barbecue because yeah cooking on the fire seems to neutralize the bitterness quite a bit and then you add some acid and some salt and it's actually tasting bloody delicious usually come the end huh. so if it's bitter you add acid and that helps. uh yeah we'll typically add some kind of acid some kind of acid some kind of salt well i mean it's if it's bitter it's going to need some kind of yeah combination of acid salt or eat sometimes not not so much and then the, the kind of the use of cooking on the fire is brilliant at um, softening bitterness okay so we have this plant that comes to well it's growing at the moment but it's towards the end of the season and it lines all the coastal areas it's called alexander well, Alexander. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah you know that yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, early in the season when the the flower heads just form it's kind of less bitter but it's very floral quite aromatic mm -hmm. a little bit fennelly little bit celery-ish it's yeah it's quite distinct you know until you've tried it um, and some people hate it they can't stand it because it's floral kind of astringent bitter um but yeah i mean the way that i would always cook it um without fail would be to put it on the barbecue get a little bit of char you know on the outside a little bit of roasted caramelized crispiness from you know putting a bit of fat on there to, to get that mm -hmm. and then covering it in i mean simply like lemon juice or we try to use things other than lemon juice because we don't have lemons <laughs> but mm. it's delicious you know you've got it's just accentuating all those delicious flavors that some people don't like and it's just the simple such a simple way of cooking it and it's such a kind of like primal way of cooking i think isn't it cooking on fire <laughs> it makes these wild bitter things taste so good so what would you use for an acidy thing if, it, if you don't use lemons oh, what's right, okay. the equivalent play around with different types of vinegars so we make vinegars and we infuse vinegars and obviously each vinegar has a kind of different intensity. Um, you know, we'll use white wine vinegar or apple cider vinegar a lot, and mm. you know, we'll, we'll make vinegar using vinegar that has the mother in it. And um, there's lots of different flavoured vinegars. We'll, we'll often infuse with a lot of these ingredients that we're using to kind of give that flavour to an ingredient through the acid as well. So definitely another layer of seasoning. But yeah, infused vinegars is definitely something that we have a lot of on our shelves. Mm. With the, so the white wine vinegar, do you use white wine from the UK? Uh, yeah, we will we'll use white wine from the UK because we've got such amazing vineyards, um, I think, around us as well. It's, and um, it works, does it, growing yeah. wine in the UK? Yeah, oh my God, you need to go and visit some of the vineyards around us. So we were using some wine, well, we were selling some wine 
made by this amazing natural wine producer called Daniel Ham. Mm. And he was using grapes from people all over, but specifically from a lady in Ottery St. Mary. He was taking a little patch of, of grapes from her that made this really interesting wine. So she was growing Saval Blanc, second great variety. And yeah, he used that. So I don't know if you, you guys ever drink wine or anything. But we do, um, yeah. Uh, if you ever fancy tr like trying an interesting English winemaker who's who's making wine um, in in the most natural way possible, you know, allowing that spontaneous fermentation yeah. and not using any anything weird, he's definitely the one I would recommend. <laughs> That's great. So I was saying I kind of want to grow grapes in our garden. Yeah. And can, is that like feasible in Bristol and turning it into wine or is that...? You do need sun, really. You but want them to at least have a chance at ripening. Um, why do we historically not grow, like make wine in uh, England? Because it rains too much. Yeah. So, so, mm. the, so the, the, the grapes in the south of England now have a chance at ripening because of the climate. Right. And they still, I mean, it's still a cool climate, so they're only going to ripen a certain amount, but they, and so they do retain like an awful lot of acidity. Okay. And that acidity is so essential for the, for the wine. It's just, it's really, it's really good. That's why, you know, we're, we're very, it's very comparable here to, you know, to the, to the north of France where you've got, you know, champagne and that's why, you know, the champagne houses are buying all the plots of land here because it's a similar soil and ah. the climate's the, nearly the same now. So, so, I mean, there's a wine in Dorset made by a vineyard called Langham. Mm. And they, they were, like a couple of years ago, they were voted um, at the International Wine Awards like, as the best sparkling white wine. So they beat off all of the champagne houses in blind taste testings. Wow. Which is pretty, pretty cool, I, I think. Okay, but, yeah. so it really is becoming good. Yeah, you? like England's 100% on the, on the map for really, really good quality white, white, white and sparkling wine. And how long has that been the case? I think somewhere between, you know, over the last five to ten years it's kind of hmm. had, it's come up in terms of people's awareness of that. And there are so many more vineyards now. And is this, this is all basically because of climate change, is it? Yeah. Wow. Um. <laughs> That's quite uh, damning, really, isn't it? I mean, it's nice that we can have wine, but... You know, that, that's quite a clear test because uh, people aren't going to invest loads of money into making this product if it were based on a lie. You know, it must yeah. be the case that the climate has noticeably changed. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, we see these kind of freak events and you know that the, the frequency of those things is increasing with climate change. But to see that the climate's actually changed in such a way that you can predictably grow new stuff here. Yes. It's quite worrying, isn't it? Yeah, is it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I wanted to see some other of the kind of garlics to show you, but I haven't seen any. Ah, we just got this one. We just got your wild garlic, yeah. I was hoping we'd see some of that hedge mustard and some three-cornered leek, but we haven't, so... But I'll keep my eyes peeled just in case we did walk past them. Okay. Yeah, we're nearly back now. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll make it tomorrow, because I think people are going to oh. eat there tomorrow, so I'll be like, all right, let's have this super strong... Uh, Garlic pesto. Yes, exactly. It can kind of strip your mouth sometimes and leave you with no taste buds for the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I like. <laughs> yeah, like bring it. Uh. 
I need to get the pine nuts though. There's temperate, they seem to often not appear in supermarkets, then they stockpile oh, them. Very expensive. Would you consider another an alternative? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Is there something I can get? Oh, well, I mean, just another nut, you know. Oh, just, okay. I mean, because if you think something else that's going to give you a little bit of crunch, I mean, quite often if I was making a pesto, I might like toast some hazelnuts or something. Oh, so it doesn't have to be pine nuts? Well, I mean, depends how particular you want to be about it, because it's just giving you a nice little nutty crunchiness. Is that so? It is a bit of taste, but mostly texture, is that? A little bit of te yeah, the texture. Okay. But if you're going nice and coarse and chunky with the wild garlic, I'd definitely be up for using like a toasted hazelnut or something like that. Okay, and those are a bit easier to get hold of. Right? Yeah, we basically we would just we make pastos with any anything that we've got lying around. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, thanks for that. Thank thank you. Well, here's hoping Felix's pesto went well. Join me next week to hear the second part of our conversation where we cover more on foraging, how subjective flavour is, Japanese tea ceremonies and how science explains things that were previously thought of as magic. <laughs>